Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what will be the impacts of perfect speech recognition? Now, before we begin today, I just want to say that we're going to introduce a new segment at the end of this episode, which is going to be listener feedback. Since we got a couple responses to the last two episodes that I thought were interesting and worth addressing. Right. Stay tuned uh, to the end of this episode and you may hear your own words read back to you by one of us. Sure. (laughs) I'm sure that's a treat for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) No, but we're excited that uh, you guys take the time to write into us and leave comments. So we want to address some of the more interesting ideas that our um, listeners have. But now let's get into our question, which is uh, about speech recognition. Right. And to me, this is going to be kind of like episode 33, which we did on self-driving cars, in that speech recognition, like self-driving cars, is one of these technologies that get trotted out every time someone wants to make an argument about how things are changing. Right? Yeah. There are a lot of impressive tech demos in this realm. Well, it's something that we've seen progress in recently. Sure. But it's not perfect, just like self-driving cars aren't perfect. We don't have self-driving cars on the road everywhere yet. And... Yes, our phones do some speech recognition. We all have, you know, Siri or Google Now or something equivalent, but it doesn't necessarily work as well as it could. But because it kind of works, we can see where it's going and we can imagine what it would be like if it was better and it was actually disseminated everywhere. And what I want to focus on mostly in the episode is just perfect transcription. With speech recognition, there's like at least two components that I can think of, right? There's the the transcribing of it into actual written words, but then there's also actually comprehending it. Right, right. Well, and these things are linked, but not entirely, right? Uh, Yes. Because there's going to be limits to transcription without understanding due to the wonkiness of human languages. But right, you should be able to get a lot of transcription down without any understanding and maybe get to full transcription with only partial understanding. Right, exactly. So we're not assuming, you know, an incredible AI that can completely understand what a human's saying, because I think that's a much harder benchmark to hit. It has to understand it enough to, you know, infer the right words for the context. So there's a little bit of under, what you could call understanding. There's some contextual this. awareness or something that you need, I think, to do good transcription. I mean, that's sort of where we're at now, where Google uh, has a system that will, you know, listen to your voicemail. If you have Google Voice, right, and it'll transcribe it for you. That transcription is pretty accurate on a sonic level, but the result is often comically unreadable still because it doesn't correct for obvious context problems. Right, whereas a human a, with understanding would, would, would put it together that right. you mean... It gets a close-sounding yeah. word that's just totally absurd in the context, like kind of a lot. You know, like, it, my exactly. name is Ted, and a lot of people, when they send me a, a voicemail message, start it with... Hey, Ted, this makes sense, right? <laughs> they're, they're talking to me. I well, think I know where this is going. Very often, Google Voice thinks that they're saying, Hey, Dad, and I don't have any children that I'm aware of. So, uh, Was that scary the first time you saw it? Did I mean, think maybe no, for a I, I figured what it was going on. It's not like I didn't figure it out, but it, it definitely, it's comical. It's like, uh, it's especially comical when my own dad is appearing to call me dad in the transcript. <laughs> Uh, that's weird. That's, you know. Yeah, so exactly. There's problems. And we'll actually get into those problems a little more in a second. Right. But uh, yeah, the point is the thought experiment that we're going to do on this episode is we're going to imagine that 
all voice and speech and spoken word can be turned into text, you know, with 99.9% accuracy. Right. And whether or not it understands it, we'll leave as it a only needs separate question. However much it needs to understand it to get there. Right. But no more. Right. Okay. okay. So that's the assumption we're making. Just good transcription. It'll know the difference between dad and Ted. Right. Yeah. And I guess since you brought up, you know, the, the issues facing voice recognition now, we can go through some of the others too that we would have to solve in order to get to this world that we're talking about. So you mentioned sound alike phrases or, or homophones. But also, right. uh, it, it's a challenge for these algorithms to tell, you know, different types of voices, people with accents, right? It has to work over a wide range right. of sounds, you know? So that's a big challenge. Uh, and a big one, too, that we're going to imagine gets solved sometime in the near future is separating speech from background noise. I mean, that's a huge one. Right, right. Because basically, this stuff works pretty well. If you, if you download some professional dictation software and you speak right up into a microphone like I'm doing now and you enunciate and you train the thing and you correct its mistakes. I mean, you're going to get to pretty good results. Right. But that's, you know, a, a far cry from, you know, picking up a conversation that's in a crowded area or somewhere where there's any kind of background noise at all. Right. And you imagine that this is going to be a challenge in an ongoing way because it's a challenge for human hearing um, to pick up Right. Speech in a crowded bar or something like that. So uh, obviously that's a, that's a legit issue um, that they'll always be to some extent. Well, and I'm going to say, you know, because perfect, yeah, even a human can't do perfect. I mean, sometimes... Right. just needs to do good enough, as good as we do. As good as we do, yeah. Right. Other issues are, you know, punctuation, I think, is a big one. And also knowing what to ignore. You know, people say ums and you know, and, and they stop and they start and... You know, a human can kind of filter that stuff out. It seems like a computer would have an easy time filtering that stuff out. I mean, I think that the phrases that people use to stall when they're speaking are maybe common enough that this is an easy script to write. Uh, So I'm not saying it's difficult. I'm just saying... That seems like the least challenging one of our challenges so far. Maybe, maybe. The other thing that's challenging, I think, about this stuff is the technical reality of getting it done... Uh, on the fly. Like, yes. uh, I, I have uh, a phone that has a uh, speech recognition in it, and I use it sometimes when I'm on the road and I don't want to touch my phone. It works actually pretty well if you say the like pre programmed commands exactly the way they want you to say them, but it's really slow. And the reason it's yes. so slow is because it has to record audio, send the audio through the network to the cloud, wait for the server to process the audio and figure out the command, and then return the command to the device. And that's a long process for a modern day phone, you know? Well, I will tell you that even locally it's slow because I, I was playing with some dictation software today, actually. Oh, on your desktop? Yes, on my desktop. And there's still huh. a noticeable delay. I think it's a little better than what you get on the phone, but... The phone stuff- is a pretty... It's a pretty long delay. If I wasn't driving and therefore distracted from the phone, I'd be annoyed with how slow it is. It seems like that's a challenge. This is a pretty processor-intensive task, and we're used to carrying pretty thin clients in our pockets. And in your pocket is kind of where you want this. Right. Okay, so let's say now we have phones in our pockets that can just transcribe everything perfectly. What, What kind of world is that? And I think actually that's a pretty different place. I mean, I think there's some interesting consequences of that, and that's what I wanted to talk about on this show. So... The first one that I have on my list here is how this makes accessible tons of new data that right now is just not searchable at all. 
Right. This is a really interesting idea. I want to add before we like get into it sure. that you don't actually need this in your pocket for this one to work. That's true. Our existing level of tech where it works really well on a big fancy server somewhere makes this accessible to any company or government or organization of any kind that's got a lot of data. Like if you're YouTube or Facebook or uh, the NSA or whoever you happen to be, sure. and you've got a big pile of data, you can, with just better a better version of what we already have right now. Well, and, and let's talk about, I mean, some know, of the things that come to my mind are basically video content, right? Right. Which is full of audio. Right. Uh, um, you know, also all the audio content, like songs and podcasts and things right. like that that are in the world. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I guess if you're the NSA, phone calls, perhaps. Phone calls are, are just audio files. That's right. right. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's an incredible resource right. if um, that's your goal. Uh, <laughs> I was more, yeah, but let's, let's stay on the, the happy, fun stuff for a second. Right. right. Like when all the videos and podcasts and other things that you can't search right now that are loaded with content become all of a sudden transcribable. Now, I think there's actually two benchmarks here, and I think maybe the first one we've almost already hit mm-hmm. because there's machine-readable and there's human-readable, right? Okay, so what do you mean by that? So here's what I mean by that. I, in preparing for this podcast, took one of our previous podcasts, our first episode, okay, and I uploaded it to a machine transcription service okay, that was charging 10 cents a minute as opposed to 70 cents a minute for a human transcript. Okay. So I thought, well, that's really cheap. I want to see how well that works. I would like to have transcripts of our podcast. Sure. And, you know, we'll post this maybe, but what it gave me back is actually what I would call machine readable in that it gets most of the words right. Now, there are some mistakes in here, of course, uh, especially around proper nouns, like Peter Thiel's name is translated as either kill, for example. So you know, the computer is simply telling us something there. Right. It, it's certainly not perfect. But and the main thing, though, too, and I'll show you this, Ted, even though this doesn't help our listeners at all. It's just a big block of unformatted Oh, my goodness. Text. Okay, guys. I'm looking at this transcript, and it's on Dolly Mono, and it is, like, there are no carriage returns anywhere. So it is just, like... It's not human readable. No, I mean, this is... Uh, the punctuation is really erratic. It has some periods in there, but in seemingly <laughs> random places... <laughs> But it's getting most of the words right. So if you were a computer trying to crawl this for, you know, what's the subject of this podcast, Yeah, uh, you would probably, this would be good enough for that. Well, and also I bet you could give this to somebody on TaskRabbit with the podcast and be like, correct this. And we'll give you, you know, 15 bucks to do it. Yeah, I was toying with that in my head whether or not And that might be cheaper. Be faster. I don't know if it actually would be. I don't know. It's a, that's... That's worth an experiment. Since yeah. I, I didn't know you were doing this, since we uh, since we did a machine translation, did you did you simultaneously hire a human to do the same job? I did, but that one didn't come back yet. <laughs> okay, well that answers the question then, doesn't <laughs> so it, that, it? That one's slower. Uh oh, man. It's slower and it's more expensive. <laughs> but you know, but this one is unreadable. <laughs> So that's what I'm saying. I, and I, I know I've gotten, I've seen human transcripts before. I mean, it's going to be nice. It's going to say John colon and then whatever I said and right. Ted colon and then whatever you say. Right. So that's what I mean by the difference between machine readable and human readable. Be- I see. Because I think you could maybe use Okay, this. I get what you're saying. What yeah. you're saying is that you can use this to go into a search engine and you can search this right. reliably, even though you can't necessarily read it. 
you can, you can sit search back it on a plane and like enjoy this and you you could search it and if it were in a properly you know set up technological situation um you could jump directly to the part of the audio that's related to whatever you're searching for. That's true, and that would be a cool feature. That and then should you be don't need now. to read it. You right. know, uh, you don't ever need to interface with this unreadable document. The unreadable document just helps the search engine get you to you know the minute and second of the uh, podcast that you want. Right, like uh, like on YouTube, you can manually set up links in your about to jump to different parts of a video, like chapters mm -hmm. in a video. You could have the same thing, but you can have them automatically generate on a search. Right. Or like, let's say on Netflix and you were watching a movie and you wanted to see an iconic scene. Right. You're like, where's that part in Pulp Fiction where Samuel L. Jackson says, you like know, quotes the, the Bible or something. Yeah. Right? A path of a righteous man. I can't remember all of it. Right. So I type righteous man in there and I can watch you know, him do it the first time in the motel room and then I can watch him do it later in the diner. Right, you I can want. jump right to those things. And actually, yeah. so, so this might be the kind of thing that, you know, could roll out now. It, <laughs> you know, I mean, this seems, or very soon. And I, I think it would make a, for people doing research on anything that's not text-based, like videos uh, and podcasts and things of that nature, I think this would be tremendously useful, even at the machine-readable level. Because I hadn't even thought of what you just said, which is that, like, finding the right location. Yeah. Cool. Now, if it was human readable, I mean, that would be awesome because then the punctuation would be all correct and you would actually be able to generate, you know, nice documents out of these things. Right. And I imagine the way that's going to happen is with like presets, basically formatting presets. Like somebody designs a podcast friendly formatting preset that indicates every time the speaker switches you should put you know speaker a speaker b or something and format it with a, a name and a colon and something you know like it gives the computer some rules to follow right because you don't want to format everything the same way right formatting is a very human task because it's very like subjective and flexible and it, you kind of know it when you see it but you could codify some formats that work for a broad range of applications and sort of use them the way that you use other kinds of presets, you know, and in, in, in complicated computer programs now. So I could kind of see that getting better, though never perfect. Right. Or like not until we have human level AI that can do lots of things. Well, and you'd probably have to tell it, like if you're transcribing a movie, you would probably have to, like the first time a character speaks, you would probably have to tell the computer, this is the character of Jason or whatever, right? You would probably have to feed that at least the first time. And maybe if the computer was smart enough, once you did that once, right. it would know the sound of Jason's voice well enough that every other time that character spoke. Now you'd think if you were doing this for a movie that you'd actually have a script that you could feed the computer. That it could cross And that it could basically just marry the script to the audio, probably more or less on its own. Well, um, if you already have a script, then you don't even need this to begin but with. Right, but right, but many things don't have a script. So like if you had like a documentary, say. Well, now that you mention, uh, I mean, the fact that obviously scripts exist for movies, they're just not always available, right? I wonder if this could be a bit of a, I mean, this is just yet another way that people will potentially freak out about intellectual property, right? If you're taking audio content and turning it into another medium, you know, without permission by running it through <laughs> an algorithm. 
Like, you know, because this might be the kind of thing where maybe Netflix could transcribe all of the films that are in their archive, but do they have permission to do that? Probably not. Well, and the other thing is, like, Netflix, I'm sure, has closed caption data for nearly all of the films. That's true. In their archive already because, you know, they support closed captioning. But you can't search and, that stuff, right? right? That's what I was just going to say is, why haven't they made that searchable? And I wonder if right, that is that. an IP problem or if it's just a technology problem. But you would think that it would be not that hard for them to extract all that into a database and make it searchable so that you could search for quotes right. and uh, other such things. So, but yeah, let's think about, say, YouTube, though, because you right. know, we're talking a lot about Netflix, and obviously those are all... The Netflix movies are things that have scripts and no, closed no, here's, captioning. Here's where this gets really interesting, is you yeah, think yeah. about YouTube and Facebook and all of the videos that people upload to those places that are just... They're not productions, that are just like their life. And there's they're tons of interesting stuff logging. out there in the wilderness of, of video land that you can't ever find, maybe. That's true. That's true. Yeah, for Discovery, it'd be really great. And also for the dark side of it is like for, you know, marketing and collecting information on people. Absolutely. And, um, you know, invading people's privacy for various reasons, whether you're the government and you're trying to prevent terrorism or you're um, a company and you're trying to sell blue jeans or whatever, whatever the reason is. Um, it's going to make all this stuff that is currently got some de facto privacy because nobody's going to go through the needle in the haystack and personally watch your video on YouTube and extract the information about you. But if a computer can just do it and dump you into a box with a billion other people, well, then that becomes cost effective to do. This just sounds incredibly fun to me. The fact that I could type righteous man, say, or some, <laughs> some other phrase and get, you know, a, a bunch of like links back to the right places in different videos of people saying righteous man for different reasons. I just think, you know, that's going to be good for, Oh yeah. It's going to be so good for video art, at least video art and, fi and film students, man. Like yeah. when you need to find every movie that's quoted a particular Bible passage for your like final paper, that is going to be like a one, like a one minute job. Right. Yeah. So why don't we move on now to the next thing on the list Okay. that I wanted to talk about, which is, repercussions for life logging of voice recognition. Right. Which is, this is where it really is important for a thought experiment that this thing can tell voices as distinct from background noise. Right. So let's say you've got your phone in your pocket. Like this would also require more speed and, and tons of disk space. Although those things aren't that hard to imagine, but imagine you've got this thing always much, much better battery life. Yes, that's true. So, I mean, there's multiple challenges here, but nothing that seems, you know, unbeatable. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, you know, if you don't turn this on all the time if it's a battery life issue. But you could imagine having your phone in your pocket just always recording every conversation that you're in, Yep. dumping that into text format, and then making that searchable to you at a later time. Let's say the formatting even isn't totally perfect, right? Like sometimes it says that, you're talking when really your friend is talking. I still think that that would be pretty amazing. Yeah, so that starts to look a little bit like your Gchat history, but sort of for like your regular life. That's, that's how I think of it, right? Okay. In the way that you say, okay, I don't know that phone number or address, but I know it's in Gmail somewhere, <laughs> right? The way you just like kind of offload a lot of things that you can just search for later. You'd right. Be like, I know that he told me about some, you know, cool TV show I should watch, but I don't 
remember what it was. You right. Know? So I can just search Saturday's feed. Right. I'm just going to look for like TV and the person I was talking to and figure it's near there. Exactly. In the, in the scroll. Yeah. I like the idea of textual live logging a lot better than the idea of full video audio life logging because it seems like its ratio of useful information to embarrassing information would be better. I agree. <laughs> and not only that, it seems easier and yeah, it, and, and plenty useful. That's a pretty good prediction, actually. I hadn't thought of that, but I feel like that might be the way that life logging takes off, you know, the in a similar way to the way that text messaging and email have proven so resilient and powerful despite all these high resolution communication media like it may be that the text carries so much of what we want to know and so much less of what we maybe don't necessarily want searchable at all times <laughs> i don't know I mean, that may i could see that being easier to get people to adopt but yeah i mean i think that's why this is so easy to imagine because we're already doing this i mean text and email already is a pretty complete log of my life somewhat i mean well yours yeah because you're you communicate exclusively through text yeah i mean i don't i don't even make that many phone calls for, for i feel like we only talk during the podcast if the <laughs> <laughs> that's not true actually no it's uh, not i I'm, I'm exaggerating but but, uh, but yeah no, I, I, mean, I know what you mean and i don't think i'm that unique in that i use a lot of textual communication even you know i mean i think everybody varies on that spectrum yeah i mean i i if it comes to phone calls, I hardly ever use phone calls because I'm just not into that format. That's just me. But I think, you know, there's a lot of people in the world like me. I mean, you could tell a reasonably complete story of my life looking at just the text I generate. The thing is that <laughs> it is missing things that yeah. are important all sure. the time. Sure. So I'm just saying, you know, all Ad, that- Get other, those things in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like this. And I think um, another thing that uh, a textual life log could do is it could interface with the other kinds of sensors you have with you all the time. So for example, since you have GPS, you could have a text log strung in with your conversations. It could be logging when you went where, you know, when you left your house, when you got to work, all that stuff could be part of your textual log. Right. And uh, would fill in some nonverbal information. And then, I mean, obviously it, when you shoot a video or take a picture, those things would jump into the log as well. But it would, um, I could imagine this being the way people choose to do their logging because uh, it would be less processor and battery intensive, but also because it would be, you know, you don't necessarily want a video record of every second of your day. No, But no. you maybe do want a text record, like, you know, just like an automatically generated journal, basically. And just from a practical disk space perspective, in the beginning at least, I mean, sure. it's going to be easier to save all that text, of right? Of course, yeah. Here's the thing, too. How would people respond to the knowing that they're always being recorded in their social interactions? Because I think that's the interesting question is how does this affect how people act or does it affect how people act at all if they know that every conversation they're having, even casual conversations <laughs> with friends, is going to be part of a searchable record? Some people would become much more annoying in this world. I feel like there would be a, a personality who would insist on you know, reading, checking the record, right. Checking like either to say you've changed your position or to say, you know, uh, consistency Nazis basically. Yeah. Or to just argue, like you said this about this other thing and therefore, you know, you're being inconsistent about, about this or there'd be some people who would be very socially obnoxious with this technology. But I think most people, you know, it wouldn't affect them much and they'd probably go on acting as if they don't constantly check the record whether or not they actually do. 
Right. I mean, in in most cases, you would, or, you know, I would only check it if I forgot something or, you know, that was useful that I needed to know, which is when I checked the email record. Right. But, you know, there's also cases where people are, you know, maybe they're, you know, in a tense romantic situation or something and they go back to some conversation and like read it over and over again. Like, oh, yeah. Trying to figure out the subtext, like, right. of, like what was being said for real there. Right. I mean, people already do that with text. So I'm, I'm sure there would be a lot more. It would more get worse. Yeah. 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 But I was asking too, like, how would people actually behave differently in the moment when they're being recorded? Or would, they, I mean, I think, feel like people would quickly just get used to it. But at the beginning, it might be weird, right? I mean, would. Well, this is like a big question for the future in general, right? right? Like we're just always being more recorded than in the past. And it does seem to affect us to some degree. I, I, I'm not sure that you just get used to it. I think it's a you little say, bit. Okay, this one, turn it off, right? This conversation's not for the record. So, right. You'd start to think about that more often, which is already weird. And I think already like I'm when I'm online, think in terms of like, oh, I'm on the record. You know, right. because I just feel like uh, I don't have the ability to control where my text goes once I submit it. Do you feel like that when you're doing email, though? Yeah, when I'm doing email, I feel like that because email is like not secure and it's sitting on some company's server. And I know for a fact they've got backdoors to the government. So, I mean, I don't think the government's after me. I'm not crazy, but I figure that anything I say... You might not want to talk about the, the mushrooms you're going to do next weekend or something, is <laughs> like, what you're saying? I mean, if I were going to be doing mushrooms next weekend, I probably wouldn't email that to everybody. Right. Or if I did, I would be doing it as a calculated risk, thinking, well, nobody gives a shit about me and my mushrooms. Right. But like, yeah, I mean, anything that I was in any way worried about, uh, I always say, God, the government, and my grandma, you know? <laughs> if, if, I'm, if I don't think those things should all see something i don't put it on the internet because i figure that's who's on the internet fucking everybody god the government and your grandma yeah like just the twist ending of your life is they're all the same person right well and i you know one of those three things may not exist so um and all my grandmothers are dead so so none of them exist anymore either any either but um anyhow um yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it does affect us. And I think uh, our modern society is affected by its current level of surveillance. I think that uh, people will adjust to it and that it won't be the end of the world, but that there will be, you know, that there's a certain pathology, I think, that comes from the experience of feeling watched and that that will be more prevalent in, a, in our future where we'll almost certainly feel that way. <laughs> You know, this is like a step along the way to total surveillance, but all of your words being searchable by outside entities potentially is, it's disturbing. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about the end of privacy, and this feels like a pretty big jump Yeah, along that road. Yeah. And it feels like one that's not very far away. Because a long time ago when we ta- did our end of privacy episode, I think it was like episode three, mm-hmm. we, we supposed a lot bigger thought experiment than this. We imagined good facial recognition and cameras everywhere. And this is just saying something relatively simple. Like we take something right. that's like a slightly better version of Siri. We give people some more disk space in their pocket. We speed it up and we just record everything. And that already looks like a pretty different world in terms right. of... Well, and realistically, audio goes before video because it's lower bandwidth. Right. And uh, you, know, you can imagine this happening first. Uh, that does seem reasonable. And since text is 
much lower bandwidth, much easier to store. You know, I can see that definitely being the uh, the earliest form of this. Well, um, so I I did want to talk about, and we've already touched on this in a lot of ways, but uh-huh. the surveillance implications, right? Because we've talked about you know privacy in terms of you and me going out and having a conversation, right? And we've we've mentioned the government a few times here, yeah. But let's just talk about that directly, right? I mean, this is a tremendous resource for people spying oh yeah if i'm the nsa i want this technology tomorrow yeah i mean and who knows they may have it i mean given the fact that (laughs) i was able to order up this transcript in 24 hours for four dollars and yes it's a big block of text but i mean if you were just looking for you know if you're just keywords searching uh, for muhammad blow up building or whatever it is they're looking for um, (laughs) i wonder what their terror (laughs) keywords are that's a really dark idea Terror keywords. Top seven terror keywords. Uh, like is they like, just, you know, they just ran a bunch of terror. Like they just did big data analysis, right? Took the all the emails from known terrorists, ran them through a computer. It turns out, like, you know, shoe shine or something. It turns out there's like unrelated words that they like, right. happen to say. But the second, you know, the top seven terror keywords gets leaked on the internet and becomes like, oh, a, yeah, like well, a viral list. Then listicle. that's a meme. Then everybody's using it, right? Right. Well, then, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then, then the terrorists are going to find seven new words, of course. Right. Uh, right. If they're, you know. No, they, they have to keep the words secret and the fact that they know them secret or they stop working, obviously. <laughs> this is so absurd. This is pretty absurd, yeah. This is a pretty absurd one, uh, even by our standards. This, this episode? Think. Yeah, this or just this part of the conversation. Right. Um, well, so, okay, so fine. I, I don't know what else to say about surveillance other than that. Like, it gives them tremendous tools, and is that bad or good? I, I think we covered that in, in well, previous right. episodes. I mean, it's good when they're trying to catch legit criminals or keep people safe, and it's bad when they're doing anything that's not that, essentially. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the simple right? answer. Um, but, the, but the problem is that they're not going to give you any transparency, so you're never going to know what they're doing, and... Uh, you know, it's it's that that's frightening. Um, Episode forty one. That's where we talk about uh, the the deeper issues around you know whether this is good or bad and and losing privacy and so forth. But let's right. just so you yeah. can you can refer back to that if you want to know our detailed opinions there. But anyway, it's is also going to have a lot of impacts on like the way we design things, right? Right. Like um, uh, you know, interface design. Absolutely. Uh, for your phone, for your even smaller wearables, you know, they're coming out with watches now. It'll, it's probably not too far off before they have earrings and glasses and necklaces and things that are that are smart. Which for recording speech is a better location than a phone in your pocket, actually. Well, yeah, there's actually no better location than one on each ear because you'll get binaural recording. Right. And it'll sound as much like human hearing as, as you can get, basically. That's so the, earrings. Earrings would be the best way earrings, to Earrings, I think, are ideal, or, you know, um, or headphones that have microphones, you know, like uh, a headphone set or earbud right. set that has microphones on it. Those would be ideal for getting very subjective audio that sounds exactly like, you know, what you were hearing at the time. Oh, well, that actually, hold on, I got to stop there because now that's taking me to a strange days place. Okay, yeah. Where uh, you're, checking <laughs> the, you're, you're checking the audio record, you know, not so you can find out, you know, what was that great book that somebody recommended to me that I can't remember the title of. Instead, you're going back so you can like close your eyes, sip a glass of wine and be taken back to some previous audio experience that you had, which is really weird. <laughs> that right? is really weird. I feel like that's going to be a niche I'm not saying everybody thing. would do this, no. but, but, but I you mean, know, if you went to a really good concert or if like, 
Well, what I think would be great is the Strange Days thing where you're listening to somebody else's memory. You know, somebody else went to a concert you couldn't get to, and they recorded it binaurally um, from their great seat. Right. Uh, you know, made their own bootleg, and then you download the file, and you play it back on your headphones, and it's like you're there. I mean, of course, we can do that now. Uh, that's not the future. That's the present. But uh, you can imagine if this technology was ubiquitous, more people would do things like that. I mean, I think that's kind of similar to these VR video experiences that we talked about uh, on our VR episode, like uh, Jaunt VR and, and Hero 360-type VR right. experiences. But You, you know, would pair this with that. You, yeah, you put those together. I think that's going to be more compelling with, uh, with video. Uh, to get back to this idea of like interfaces. Right, right, sorry. It seems like one major thing that's uh, holding back a lot of computer interaction is, is voice activation. You mm-hmm. know, and we talked about earlier in the episode how like it works now with a narrow range of commands, but it's very slow because right. of the way it has to work. And so I think, you know, that's going to get better. Absolutely. Yeah. And and here's where we start to verge into a little bit of that understanding issue, right? How well does it understand you? Can you speak naturally to it? Right. But I think even setting that aside, if it just could, if we could just iron out the kinks of you know, it n- never quite getting the word correctly or where you had a slightly wider vocabulary that you could use, it would become a lot more useful, I think. Right, or even if you could just reliably and quickly and smoothly get preset commands. Yeah, because even that doesn't work that well. It's just like right now it's like still slow and janky and you have to say it exactly right, 100% right. But like, you know, they've got a lot of voice activation on TVs coming out, you know, recently. I haven't tried one yet that I thought was any good but you could imagine that working well enough that you can just be sitting there watching tv and you're just like what's on mtv and it just figures out what you want that's a good example of where you would want voice activation i think yeah because that's the thing is i as we've talked about before like the the remote is a crappy technology you can never find the damn remote right that's the problem that's the whole joke about remotes right so just get rid of it that's the solution and i mean I, i think people have realized this like i'm not making this up like Major TV companies have been trying to crack voice activation now for a while, as well as both Apple and Google on their TV-related products. They have some amount of voice commands. But right now, it doesn't really work, I think. But that's the thing is all this stuff feels like it just is waiting to be properly disseminated, right? Like, it feels like proofs of concept of almost a lot of the things that we're talking about. No, it's just quality of the technology is just not quite there yet. It's not, like, ready for prime time. Well, so here's another place I want to go with this. Though. Okay. So what if you, what if you're talking about something, and this is something that would work at this machine-readable level that I was uh-huh. discussing earlier. Sure. And you mention shoes, right? Okay. And then all of a sudden, you're seeing like maybe, shoe ads. Maybe I say like, ah, oh, man, I need new shoes. My shoes are getting old. Right. And then whatever screen is near you is yeah. like showing you shoe ads. I just think for context sensitive. Now that's the more like skeezy, annoying side of it. The thing is that that's not necessarily skeezy, right? Like if it's somewhat unobtrusive and the shoes they're showing me are the shoes I actually want, I might just find that to be really helpful. Well, that's true. Yeah. Ads are only annoying when they're trying to sell you products that you shouldn't buy. Uh, but when you actually need them, it's great. And I, I think, too, a context-sensitive interface that is giving you the options as you say them. You know, I mean, this is a, it seems to be this is what Google Now wants to be, you know, where you're talking to your friend about, hey, are you going 
to this concert tonight and your friend asks, where is it? And it just kind of already just manifests a map of where to go. Right. Because it picked up your conversation and figured that out. Right. Right. I mean, that's, I think, it seems like that's already what they're striving to do. Right. They're trying to like anticipate what you might search for soon and just search for it for you and put the results there. That makes sense. And it seems like this would really help train that system, right? I mean, if they were able to feed automated text versions of every voice conversation and then correlate that by time to what people then searched for on their phone, Mm -hmm. they could feed that into their deep learning server or whatever and probably train their algorithm to do a much better job than it's currently doing of that context stuff. So, yes, the last thing that I want to talk about is is job displacement. Okay. Uh, which... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the way we do things on this podcast, right? Okay, well, this is a technology. It's going to be really fun. We're gonna, it's going to do all this cool shit. Now, who's going to lose their job? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so, the first one is just the most obvious, no-duh, obvious thing, which is transcribers. Stenographers. Will lose their jobs, of yeah. course. I mean, that's not... You guys have been on the chopping block for a while. Yeah, it's it's a miracle that, you know, we still need you. <laughs> yeah. We really do, as evidenced by this experiment I did with our podcast. Yeah, you're still totally necessary, but man, are your days numbered. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, but th- customer service is the big one. Right. All right, customer service is already under attack by automation, and this is going to make a lot of telephone customer service just like a lot better when this works. Right, and again, you don't need full understanding of all human language, which is a huge and complicated task that will take a lot longer. For good customer service, you need this sort of narrow scope of understanding that you know has to deal with that particular product or service. So you right. need to know everything that they might possibly ask regarding one product. Yeah, and like the way that customer service humans do their job in most companies now is highly scripted. So, yeah, they're using some human judgment as to which script to jump to, and you'd have to write some intelligence into the machine to do that. And it would still sometimes be like, I didn't quite understand that, or whatever they say when they, you know, can't follow you. But uh, I think it could get so much closer to the human level, at least for that first tier of service. Now, the expert level service where you're talking to somebody who's actually got engineering knowledge of the software you're working with or something like that will be a bit harder to automate. Right. The people that are helping you with your MySQL database, but like uh, probably won't be automated first. Right. But that first tier, that's like, did you check your password? Do you need me to reset it? Like, you know, stuff like that. It seems like this could easily knock them out of the loop. Well, yeah, because I think, you know, most customer service questions fall under those frequently asked categories, right? I mean, yeah, they're usually just somebody who needs to be walked through something because they're you know, they're having trouble deciphering the steps. So what will happen is you'll you'll keep 10% of your employees, you'll fire the other 90%. Yeah. And then those 10% that you keep will take over for the 10% of people that have a problem that's unusual. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if those exact numbers are right. I but mean, I'm might, making might, numbers. It might yes. be more like 1%, honestly. This is not based on I data, think, but yeah. I, I think those, you know, those escalated tiers are, are rare, basically. But the thing is, you can introduce this stuff gradually because you can always just switch over to the human when you run into a problem. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, that's going to be huge. I mean, I mean, customer service, I don't know off the top of my head how many people that employs. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know either, but around the world, it's a huge employer. 
and it's uh, something that's been relatively resilient to globalization because of the language stuff. They do it around the world, but they do still a lot of it here in the U.S. You can imagine this really cutting into what's left of the of the U.S. market. Absolutely. Kind of yeah. And I mean, it shouldn't be, it's, this might sound really terrible. Oh, all our customers are just going to get automated, but you know, it's not going to be terrible. That's the thing is it, the, the reason this is going to get adopted is because it's going to work and it's going to be. Oh yeah. You're talking about like, you know, cause this is sort of fodder for dystopian science fiction and sometimes stand up comedians, the whole like getting stuck talking to the robot. Cause it is annoying these days, but yeah, but it's less annoying today than it was five years that's ago. That's true. And it, it ke- the more, it, it seems to be honestly like a pretty tight correlation with how much you, you actually have to deal with it versus how annoying it is. Because, you know, when things are annoying, people complain and then companies or whatever they are change their policies. I mean, it seems like it will get less annoying as it gets more adopted. And not that it will ever be completely unannoying. Uh, because talking to a human on the phone is also annoying. I mean, there's a certain amount of annoyance that just comes from the fact that you have a problem, you're waiting on the phone for somebody to help you fix the problem. That's fundamentally right, a little This annoying. will cut down the waiting times, which is far more annoying than, than, That's uh, true. than a halfway the whole decent times, robot. Yeah. Right. I mean, the hold times, are, yeah, will definitely go down. And if the robot is any good at helping you solve your problem, it won't really be that annoying it behooves companies to really be careful about how they roll this out and to make sure the technology is ready. But well, I just had a new thought, which what? is that how, since this will be software, yeah. will it scale for small businesses? Because right now what we associate with, you know, these customer service jobs, they, right. they generally are very big businesses that say have a call center. I mean, this right. is not something a small business does. And this technology, which will probably have to be trained on a lot of data uh, and, you know, probably fairly difficult to set up, probably worth it in the long run, given all the money you'll save paying employees. But I think that, you know, will it later become easy enough to set up and install for, say, your local business serving your town? Yeah, I guess I'm not sure that I'm totally seeing this the same way you are as far as like the setup cost and structure. I'm imagining, I mean, the speculation that I've been doing, and this might not be how it works out, obviously, is that the the technology for actually understanding the voices is like totally commoditized. And to the extent that it needs no, to no, be... No, no, it needs to be trained on your business's questions. So, right. So, okay, yeah. So That I, would be I, asked of it. I, yeah. I think what needs to be done is a script needs to be written, basically. And so, like, if you're a company that's big, you already have a script written where, like, hundreds of problems are already documented in a knowledge base with answers attached to them. Right, and then someone's got to do the arduous task of connecting that to this software. Yeah, but I feel like that's like, somebody will come up with a way to do that. But so, if you want it to recognize things... I think the issue for a small business is going to be writing that script. So I think you'll easily be able to get the software and get it up and running. It'll be an expense for you that you may not be able to do to actually track down all your... Frequently asked questions. Uh, it depends and how good you want to be, though. Their responses, because it has to be able to understand a wide range of human phrasings. I assume that that's all commoditized, though. Ah, uh, but not necessarily. See, because <laughs> you can't commoditize that in this in this way, because you know, if it if it fully understands human speech and all the nuances thereof, then. No, this it is, doesn't this is need well to. well beyond our thought experiment. It doesn't need to. It just needs to sort you into the correct problem of not that many problems 
Right, which is why it's attainable, but I still think that's going to require some training that's specific to a business. Well, I don't know. It depends on where the limitations of the technology are, but my assumption there was that it was commoditized to the point where like, you just needed to formulate the question in one clear way with the answer, and then it would reliably match people to the right question most of the time. And when it didn't get it, say like, can you say that again or, or ask a follow-up question. But you question. could ask the same question like hundreds of different ways. I get that, but there would be similarities among them that it could detect. So, okay. So neither of us, I guess, know this for sure. But yes, if what you're saying is true, then this would be, this would filter down to small businesses very rapidly. Right. And that would be well, tremendously the, useful. The challenge would be the same challenge, honestly, like the same documentation challenge that small businesses face now. But yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it has to work in such a way that it requires lots of specific training beyond a well-worded, well-researched, properly put-together script. Well, but, so, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it would. And then in that case, that would be, that would be well, a the, tremendous you know advantage for this bigger is a companies. Good, uh, transition, because this is something that maybe our, someone in our audience knows more about. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, maybe so you know the answer to this. Let, us, let, let us, know. us know how this has to be done. Because I think if you could make this easily distributed to small businesses, then that would be amazing because that would really lower, I mean, aside from the people that would lose their jobs, of course. Uh, but I mean, small businesses can't hire people anyways. That's the whole point. So this would really lower, I think, what is one of the biggest costs of a lot of small businesses, which is that you know you have to spend a lot of your time, if you're starting a company, doing customer service. And if you could take that burden off, I think. Right. Well, and it would be a leveling thing where it would immediately make a small business with a boutique product, you know, able to compete on a level with a more large and established business. Exactly. Uh, which is good for competition and would be uh, ostensibly good for everyone. Absolutely. Um, so. so anyways, uh, but you tell us, because we, we're obviously just guessing here, and uh, on that theme, we're going to switch to our listener feedback Okay, section. so here's the second section of the podcast. So there's, there's two things that I wanted to talk about today based upon the last two episodes that we did. So the immediately previous episode was uh, our interview with Martin Ford, uh, and we argued just a little bit with Martin Ford about his idea of tying a basic income to education incentives. Maybe right. you only get money if you, you know, graduate high school was the example he kept giving. Right. Or like in or Brazil, you get a higher tier of money. where they actually have a small pilot program of this type, you have to put your kid in school to okay, get the money. Sure. And they found that that has uh, a high compliance rate. And actually, I, I'm already mischaracterizing Ford's argument because he, he was saying that everybody would always get some money, but you would get more money there'd be an incentive to, if you to finish school met certain education criteria right and a lot of people on google plus that were commenting on our episode seemed similar to us to have some issues with this idea but they brought up some criticisms that we didn't actually raise during the interview that i thought were were interesting okay so what were those well so this is coming from alex hallett on google plus he starts by saying education and school are not the same thing and this was a common theme in the comments, which is that the nature of school and what works for education is changing, right? And there's no reason to assume that getting a high school diploma is going to mean anything or be something we even want to encourage in the near future, right? So it, these people were questioning whether or not tying something like people's income to what might actually be a really outdated educational model moving forward is maybe not the best idea. 
Um, in fact, this person, Alex Hallett, even went so far as to say, sure, we can afford to have a society of high school dropouts, which is something that Martin Ford was concerned about. If ever there was a time to allow citizens not to contribute in traditional ways, that time is now, right? Because part of the benefit of the basic income is now you're saying you're turning people loose to sort of make their own way. Right. Now, I can see the counter argument from like the point of view of political marketing here, which is oh yeah, that school is something that everybody just like likes. You know, when you're trying to pass a tax, you say it's going to fund schools, you know, that sort of thing. And it's a culturally shared goal that people that people respond to and also you know there's always concern about our nation and its competitive place in the world so if we were to have a generation with a high degree of high school dropouts i think what people would be worried would be uh we would fall behind other nations now you and i and possibly alex howlett i don't want to characterize his argument too much might not care about that we might think that that's silly we're a rich nation what do we care if we're number one or number seven uh well, <laughs> you know the, particularly on that metric which may or may not on, mean anything on, on yeah economic productivity or on uh employment or on any of these metrics that are related to high school um uh, graduation that said i i share his skepticism i think school is of tremendous use to some people and obviously the statistics still bear out that school is valuable economically but that's because of our culture and the way that we reward people for going to school well let me like uh flesh out his argument a little more because he's i I agree with you about you know politically selling this to people this is not gonna work i think martin (laughs) Martin ford's idea is better (laughs) it seems to me like he has chosen his idea not for its ideological purity but for its saleability so let's set that part aside um he also says by conditioning basic income partly on whether people finish school we provide an incentive for students to finish school in lieu of other more potentially enriching forms of education so he's talking about opportunity cost here he's saying this is kind of a, a disincentive to innovate in terms of how we educate young people, I think is what he's implying there. Right. We're kind of like hitching our cart to the old educational model in a really strong way when we say people's income is going to literally be attached to this. And it becomes the kind of thing that might slow ad- adoption of new and maybe better ways of doing things. Right. Well, at least that's how I interpret his argument. Hopefully I'm not screwing it up. Right. Well, and I think, you know, you could combat that part of the argument with school reform, right? I mean, just saying that people have to go to school is not exactly the same as saying they have to do a traditional K-12 public school program like we've had in the 20th century in the United States. Uh, That's the assumption that I think is reasonable to make that that's what we're talking about. But you could imagine a political reality in which they tie the UBI to educational attainment, but then they sort of open up the definition of what educational attainment is. Right, because even now to we encourage, have like, yeah, Montessori schools and, and things that are a little bit outside. Sure. The well, we model. have private schools of various kinds. We have charter schools of various kinds. Uh, those are different types of models for schooling, and then you know they do different types of education within those schools. And there's potentially much, many more variations on the way because there's a lot of innovation around online education, and we may end up with new format online type schools that are schools in some way, but are also very different from the schools we have now. 
I think it, the devil's in the details here. I tend to agree uh, in general with the comment, so I'm not trying to be contentious, but I actually think, um, you know, it's one thing to encourage people to better themselves. It's another thing to say they have to do that through the specific model of rigid classroom-based schooling that we have have had in this country for, for a long time. But anyway, I, I get what, what uh, Alex is saying here about, you know, education is potentially changing, and we don't know yet whether the government-mandated educational model is going to end up being versatile enough and good enough and really like the one we'd prefer for the future. So maybe we shouldn't be yoking anything to that until we see. Right, I agree. You know, I completely agree with that. So that's a, that's a really good point. One that uh, I wish I'd thought of while Martin was here. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and, thanks for that, Alex. <laughs> no, and these are the kind of comments that that are awesome to get. So please continue sending this kind of thing in. Yeah. Uh, and actually, the next comment too falls under that as well. So let's talk about Ex Machina. Okay. Because we got some feedback on our Ex Machina review from from Jody McVeigh Schultz, which is actually someone we know in real life. Oh yeah. Uh, our friend Jody. Uh but he had some he wrote us a very long email about what he thought of our review after seeing the movie. And I agreed with some things he said and not with others. Uh but he made enough good points that I want to talk about them. Okay. So first of all, he suggested and I actually agree with him that I might have been Personally, a little bit hard on the movie's portrayal of the Turing test, a little bit harder than I needed to be, uh, because the movie kind of did address those issues. In fact, we were saying in our in our review that they didn't mention the control, and I went and looked up the script, and they do, but he mentions the control like right as he's getting cut off by the other character, so I kind of missed that when I was watching the movie, and which I don't think is exactly that much of a stretch to miss. I mean, it's pretty easy t- to not notice that. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't remember that moment. So um, I, I, in the script, it's, Caleb actually says, in the Turing test, the machine should be hidden from the examiner and there's a control or, and then right at that moment, he gets cut off by the other character. Now, again, I don't think that necessarily changes the fact that the movie kind of marketed itself as a Turing test movie or that people are walking out of that movie kind of getting, I think, a false idea of what the test is anyways. So that was really... I still think my criticism stands from that perspective. Yeah, I, I'm going to say, like, that's not enough for me. I mean, they really shouldn't have even really talked about it because it's it was a totally other thing at the end of the day. Right, I um, still feel it was like a bit of really, it wasn't muddying the waters. Yeah, it wasn't really about fooling a human judge. It was about this other thing. But, I, but, but okay, I think, you know, if you technically going over the script, the movies may be in the clear... But that's where I was coming from with the criticism. Now, the, okay. the more interesting thing that, that Jody had to say uh, that I wish we'd thought of is the key cards are so dumb. We talked about the key cards, but we didn't talk about exactly how dumb they are. Oh, they're incredibly dumb. Well, they're so dumb. There's so many levels on which the key cards are dumb, right? Because first off, he has all this advanced technology. He would just have like, you know, retinal scans or DNA Some kind scans, of biometrics, Biometrics, right? right? So why does he even need the key cards at all? But even assuming that he's got the key cards because like they're just an old tech and he doesn't want to replace them or whatever, you know, like right. even assuming it's just a dumb reason that he has them, he still uses them in a really stupid way. And I, um, we had discussed this in our pre-show talk, but we didn't actually get it on the podcast, which is so dumb of us, which is like, why on earth isn't there a password on his computer? 
Right, the key card also <laughs> operates the that computer. That is, I mean, okay, I get that the key card unlocks the computer, but then when you're, you know, altering the security system for the whole compound that has a super smart killer robot in it that you're trying to keep from the rest of the you world. You would use some kind of multi- You would also have a password. Yeah. Come on. I mean, like, that's crazy. I have two-factor authentication on my Gmail. You know, that's, <laughs> it's, that's, it's, it's significantly less important than uh, than keeping a, a, a super smart AI uh, under wraps. Yeah, you would have some kind of redundant <laughs> multi-factor security, right? Even At if least. it's just like a, entering a PIN number every time you use the key card. That's what I mean. A little password or something. Yeah, something. something. I, I mean, yeah, it just seemed to me like that was... It was there for plot reasons. It was there to, to be visual simple. and right. I get it. I understand how it works in the movie. But as a speculative thing, it's crazy. Interestingly, it would had they gone with a more technical security system, it would fix one of our other issues with the plot. Mm-hmm. What's because that? well, because that would make the security harder to break. So it would make it more necessary to have Caleb, the programmer, help her. Whereas now, the way the movie stands, Caleb is kind of useless. Yeah, she manipulates him. Right. Yeah, he helps her. By the way, we're we're kind of treading into spoiler territory now, so you know, just right. That's it. right. If you haven't seen Ex Machina enough, you should or Ex Machina yet, you should probably pause now. I haven't said anything too bad yet, but we're and, gonna keep um, going now. You can listen to this after you see it. But anyways, uh, Caleb helps her escape, right? And we were critiquing the fact that she doesn't need him because right. Nathan already comes into her room. Right. Nathan already has the key card on him. Right. All she has to do kill him. Hit him over the head with something, take his key card and escape. And all that fancy stuff going down, manipulating Caleb doesn't need to be there. If you added multi-factor authentication and a more complex security system, all of a sudden her having access to a programmer is more necessary for the plot. It would actually help that problem. Right. He could have helped her by social engineering the password out of the guy. And like, you know, jumping through the harder security hoops that maybe only he as a programmer knows how to get through. It would, okay. it would make a little more sense. Sure. I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, thank you, Jody, for mentioning that. I wish we'd thought of it. Uh, the last thing, and this one I actually disagreed with Jody on, but I, I wonder if other people thought the same thing. So I wanted to respond to this, which is that we were coming down harshest on the ending of the movie, on the twist ending. The fact that apparently, as I characterized it, Nathan's plan was to try to tempt her into escaping to see if she could. Right. To find to make out it hard for her to escape to see how good she was, basically. Right. And Jody thought I misread the movie. He was saying that, you know, there's a difference between testing whether the AI could escape and whether a human test subject could be manipulated into empathizing enough with an AI that he would help it escape. Which is a little bit more Turing-like, I guess, of a reading, right? It's like, because it's about fooling the human... In- you know, and his empathy. Right. And I was thinking about that, and that's interesting. Like, maybe the the test that, you know, Alex Garland was imagining was uh, a Turing test where Caleb chooses Ava the robot over Nathan, Nathan. the human. Right. And that that's the real comparison. Right. It's like, not who's real and who's not. But it's who like, do who I do have I, feelings for? Who do I empathize with? I right. have to choose one or the other. And that actually, I mean, that's an... That's a nice reading of the movie. That's that a, does, ch- a charitable reading, but is. I think an interesting one. But, uh, you know, I went back to the script and the actual dialogue out of Nathan's mouth is, quote, Ava was a mouse in a mouse trap, and I gave her one way out. To escape, she would have to use imagination, sexuality, self-awareness, empathy, manipulation, 
And she did. If that isn't AI, what the fuck is? So to me, like, I don't know how else to read that other than he tested her traits on all these metrics that he lists. And the way that he devised to do that was to see if she could escape. Right. right. Well, and he lists empathy as only one of many things that she has to do in order to escape. So it seems pretty clear from that quote that that's not the entirety of the test. I'd say just simply because he lists other things along with it, sexuality, imagination, self-awareness, and manipulation. So only the sexuality, the empathy, and the manipulation have anything to do with Caleb. The imagination and the self-awareness have nothing to do with him. Right. And have to do with things that are endemic to Ava. So So I'm going to hold strong on that one and say the movie's twist still doesn't work for me. But Yeah, and it's not necessary at the end of the day. Like, the movie's interesting without it. All right, well, let's wrap it up. Okay. This has been Yeah, so this was our listener feedback section. If you liked that, you can... uh, We'll have more of them if you send us some (laughs) some messages. Right. Do that. And let us know what you like in general. I mean, we've done different things on the podcast where this is a new thing we're trying now even. So, you know, give us some impression of like, do you prefer interviews, reviews? Or these conversations that we have where we uh, just tackle one topic. You know, we like to do all three things, but we want to do what you like the best. So um, let us know. And and also I'm gonna I'm gonna mention again, and you're gonna maybe get tired of hearing this, but we are Ted and I are working on a comic, as I mentioned last episode, that we're very very excited about, and it's called Let Go. You can find out more information about it at LetGoComic.com. It's gonna cover all kinds of futurist topics, uh, technological unemployment, end of privacy, accelerating change, and it's gonna do it all in an indie comic book format. So if that sounds appealing. Uh, go to that URL, and we're going to be updating that too. There's not a ton up there now, but there'll be more soon. Um, and you know, pretty soon we're going to be doing a little bit of light fundraising just to help get our artists paid. Uh, but we're we're really excited about what we're working on with this. So yeah, we think our listeners are going to really like this thing. It's going to address, uh, in our way, um, all of these sort of issues that we talk about all the time about trying to make really genuinely speculative, do the hard work of making science fiction that's cultural and personal and really about uh, not just like what the future might look like, but how it'll feel. Yes. Uh, So thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. Thanks. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.